Hi everyone, this is Michael Cox for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Caitlin Cordes, an international lawyer and researcher who focuses on human rights and sustainable development. Most recently, Caitlin spent eight years developing and leading the Columbia Center on Sustainable Investments work on land, agriculture, food systems, and human rights. Prior to this, Caitlin worked at Human Rights Watch and as an advisor to the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food. We talked about Caitlin's work at the Center on Sustainable Investment, which included projects focused on land tenure and human rights, as well as coffee commodity chains. During this conversation, we talked about the roles that different types of actors, including lawyers, do and should play. We concluded by talking about Caitlin's latest project, 31 Days of Climate Action. This is a project focused on the personal, incremental, and intentional ways that each of us can confront the challenge of climate change and the psychological toll that it can take on us. You can find a list of doable climate actions and additional resources at 31daysofclimateaction.org. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Caitlin Cordes. Again, thanks for joining, Caitlin. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you today. You, I think, might be our first lawyer Ooh, on the podcast. I... So you're representing a lot of people today. That's a lot of pressure, Michael. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Um, I mean, there might be a lawyer that slipped in there earlier in, in the years, but I just don't remember. But um, you're the first person out that I thought was like, okay, this person's done, like has a legal identity and has done some work on, on rights-based issues. And that was a big part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you. Um, so the, the first question I'd like to ask you, Caitlin, is, so you got um, your BA from Northwestern, you got your JD from Columbia Law School. And I think I'd just like to start with, I mean, normally if, if it's a PhD, I ask someone a little bit about their dissertation. And I, and I guess JDs don't involve dissertations, but I'd still like to ask you, you know, what led you down your career path? For example, in during your bachelor's and during your law degree, were you already thinking about human environmental rights, for example? Like, how did that develop for you? Yeah. Um, well, the short answer was during my undergrad, no, I wasn't. I really had no idea what I was going to do. Um, but I, I've always been really interested in social justice issues and um, public interest work in some way. Um, but in undergrad, I, I didn't really know how I would make a career out of that. Um, I majored in political science and international studies, and I was really interested in international affairs and um, that type of thing. And then uh, I took a couple of years between undergrad and law school, and I, you know, I probably mostly went to law school because I didn't know what else to do with a political science degree. I didn't really want the PhD and to be a professor, um, but you know, it's kind of the default option for a lot of poli sci majors. Um, so I went to law school knowing that I wanted to do public interest work in some way and being really interested in international affairs, but not really knowing how that would all come together. And then my first year of law school, I was reading something about corporate accountability and um, around human rights abuses. And it clicked for me that like that was the topic that was um, kind of a, a way to merge a lot of my interests um, and what I 
I personally cared about in my personal life. Um, and this big, deep seated sense of like caring about justice and the injustices that exist in our everyday lives. Um, and so I started looking for ways in law school to focus on um, human rights and corporate accountability in particular. And I was lucky enough to take the human rights uh, clinic that was taught by, at the time, uh, Peter Rosenblum, who had a big focus on business and human rights. And so I was working in the clinic with him and others on um, human rights abuses related to mining, mining in the Congo and um, other, actually, with contracts, which I then ended up working on later as well, looking at you know, what are the contracts that the state is signing with the companies and what types of um, loopholes and problems do those contracts open up. Um, I was also working with Peter in the clinic on labor rights issues uh, in the soccer ball industry uh, in the run-up to the Olympics and some other things. Um, and then my last semester of law school, I was debating on whether I would take this traditional black letter law class on administrative law, which sounded totally boring to me, but lots of people were saying, this is a class you have to take before you graduate. Um, it's important. Nobody ever explains why, but there's just like this group think in law school a lot of like, these are the classes you have to take mm -hmm. and this is what you have to do. And um, I, I could either take admin law or I could take yet another human rights class. It was like human rights and globalization or something being taught by a visiting professor. And so I decided to take the class that sounded more fun and interesting to me. And that class was being taught by Olivier Deschuter, who, while he was my professor that semester, was named the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food. And so he ended up focusing the entire class on right to food issues. Mm -hmm. um, and I got to focus specifically on um, right to food and corporate accountability. And so we were uh, all writing a long paper for him that we were then going to turn into a book to be published. And my chapter was on business and human rights and right to food issues. And that really felt like all of my interests were kind of being pulled together. Um, and so I, after law school, I clerked for a year. And after I clerked, I went and worked for Olivier as, uh, for a year as an advisor to him, working on issues around land rights and agricultural workers' rights, et cetera. Um, and that really set me down the path that I ended up taking for my career. So I, I sometimes think about that choice I made my last semester of law school um, and feel very glad that I made the choice that I did because uh, if I hadn't, I wouldn't have met Olivier. I probably wouldn't have worked on right to food issues um, or land rights even. Um, and, you know, I feel like there was like some element of following my interests and my passions, regardless of what every, of all the advice that others were, were giving me to take the kind of more traditional law class. Um, but then also some element of serendipity too. It just happened to you know, work out really well that um, I got to take this class with Olivier right as he was starting this work on the right to food as well. Hmm. So in terms of, of rights, so in, in my field, which I'll, just, I'll call like commons governance, we think a lot about rights, but I don't mm -hmm. think, we don't think about them exactly the way you do, I think. Yeah. 
And there's a big, um, there's a lot of rhetoric about the environment and markets and rights, which I actually, a lot of it, I don't, I don't like very much because it feels overly simplistic about certain types of rights to the environment being optimal to, to manage our environmental problems. So privatization and, and marketization. And so that's very much about rights to nature. And, and there's been this response to that that says, well, we need to also be thinking about the rights of nature. Yeah. And there's some important work on indigenous management and governance that emphasizes that alternative perspective that it's not just about what we can take out, but it's about our obligations too. And it feels like, um, I know that there's been a, a similar like rhetorical response saying that we it's, it's not just about our right to take stuff from nature, but it's also about the rights of the people in these systems. It's about human rights, not just about like the environmental rights that people might have. Does, yeah. are you familiar with those kind of debates? Yes. Um... I, I started working on land rights when I was working for Olivier um, as he was the rapporteur on the right to food. And so he was looking at land rights and he did a, a whole report to the, I think it was the UN General Assembly um, on, or, or the Human Rights Council on land rights. Um, and so my diving in point to land rights issues and property rights issues was from this rights-based perspective. Um, and land rights are a really interesting one from an international legal perspective, because when we talk about international human rights law, we talk, we're, we're mostly talking about you know, treaties that governments have signed saying um, there are these universal rights that we agree exist and we will be legally obligated to ensure that we are fulfilling them. Um, and land rights are, there is no international, universal, internationally recognized right to land. Um, it's kind of been debated for a while and it's starting to pop up in different ways and be, it's, it's, people are interpreting the right to land into these treaties, but it doesn't kind of exist in like the major treaties as there is a right to land. Um, but there are lots of um, legally binding rights that do exist that governments have recognized that kind of functionally uh, are equivalent in some ways to a, a right to land or land rights. Um, but as I started working more on land rights and then um, after, uh, I, had a, I had a couple of jobs after law school and then I ended up at the Columbia Center on Sustainable Investment where I was leading the center's work on investment in land and agriculture and also human rights and investment more generally. Um, and as I started working on land rights more from that, in that position and from that perspective, um, I noticed this funny thing where most of the people that I was interacting with around land rights were either coming from this human rights background and, and thinking about kind of the rights that people have over the natural resources on which they rely and that are so important for their livelihoods and libertarians, because there's like this very strong property rights um, value that a lot of libertarians have as well. And it's like, in a lot of ways, it felt like we were at very different ends of the spectrum, but the spectrum was bending in a way that it became this circle where, you know, 
I, who am not a libertarian, had very similar views on property rights, on land rights, as a lot of the libertarians I was, I was working with. But then you like start to see the nuances and where, where things don't fully align um, in terms of kind of perspectives on what government should be doing versus what the market should be doing around land rights and property rights. Um, and honestly, after years and years of working on land rights, I sometimes still felt like if I sat down and really thought about property rights and what government should be doing, like my mind would start spinning in these circles because it starts to feel so complicated when you try to think about um, kind of how do you best protect the rights of people around like things that are, that are so important for their livelihoods um, while also dealing with all of the governance challenges and other rights issues that come up as well like um, women's rights and thinking about kind of how you know, in some cultures, traditionally, women have not had the same access to land and property, et cetera. Um, and so on the one hand, you know, there are a lot of arguments that governments need to respect kind of traditional governance of property and resources um, and let, you know, um, whether it's indigenous groups or, or other groups govern in the way that they have governed in the past. And then on the other hand, um, trying to ensure that women's rights, that the actions that governments take around resource rights also protect and kind of promote you know, women's rights or youth rights um, around resources as well. Mm. Um, okay, a lot to respond to there already. So, I mean, I, you're the first person who has talked to me about this circle idea. But honestly, like it's randomly occurred to my brain a couple of times over the last year or two. And I'd love for someone to just write about it. The idea that we're so used to thinking about like some kind of like scale or Euclidean distance metaphor for like political affiliation and identity. So it's like if I'm farther to the right, I'm just farther in every way that from you are to the left. But sometimes I almost feel like, yeah, it is a circle that if you keep going, you just end up at the same spot this other person was who was walking away from you about some of these issues. Yeah, I totally see that. And I will say, you know, in some contexts in my personal life, that has really freaked me out when I see that. Like, I remember feeling pretty concerned about a trade agreement that the Obama administration was was pushing. And then I saw a letter written by um, a bunch of Tea Party um, Republicans also opposing it. And I fully agreed with them in their opposition <laughs> to that, but I never thought that I would ever see a letter coming. And sorry, I might be getting too political for your podcast, but seeing it's, a letter. No, it's totally fine. <laughs> um, but I would agree with them on. But yeah, with you know property rights and land rights, I will say um, one of the people whom I think I learned the most from in terms of land rights um, was somebody who'd been working on land rights for a long time. And I have deep respect for um, everything she's done and, and all of her work. But I, I know that she's coming from it from this libertarian perspective and, and I am really not. But when it came to land rights and property rights, rights we really aligned on almost everything <laughs> in terms of you know, how we think rights should be protected and the importance of um, ensuring that people's rights are protected. Mm. Yeah. 
I mean, that's there's a lesson there somewhere about like trying to get along with people, but I don't know how far down that path we want to go. <laughs> right, right. I mean, so I do think. Yeah, sorry, I, I'll say. I guess you know when I was saying before that sometimes when I thought about land rights long enough, I would my brain would start spinning um, because there are so many nuances and complications. I I do think one place where, for example. I would sometimes start to feel uncomfortable with the view that kind of others had around land rights was kind of whether once you recognize and protect rights for people, whether those should be fully alienable or not. Um, and that always felt really tricky because, um, you know, I was doing this work where people were talking about large scale land grabs or land acquisitions and like companies coming in and renting land or buying land um, to, to grow crops uh, for their supply chains. Um, and, and there was a big push to get companies involved in that rights protection. Um, so companies supporting people to have their rights recognized on land that the company wants to use. And my fear was always, um, uh, is this just making it easier for the company to legally take the land that, um, that people are using and that they rely on? And on the one hand, it is you know, absolutely, well, on the one hand, you want people, if they have a right to something, to be able to make whatever choice they want um, with what to do with it. Um, so if you receive title to land, um, it, you know, theoretically it should be your choice, whether you rent it or sell it or keep it. Um, but on the other hand, when you see the context in which a lot of people are um, living and kind of the, the desperation that they might have in a particular year where they kind of need quick cash um, to, to make ends meet for the next couple of years, but in the long haul, selling their land will not necessarily be the best option for them. Um, I, I feel like those raise a lot of <laughs> those types of situations raise a lot of like tricky questions as well of um, uh, what exactly does it mean to get a right to land and should there be restrictions on it? And that is where I think my perspective would kind of start to diverge from some of the libertarian perspectives that. Right had brought us to the same point that far. Um, but that just like, as you start thinking about the next steps, um, start to kind of move away from each other again. Yeah. Oh, you've, you've hit a hot button for me. I've been thinking about this also a bit recently. And again, like, yeah, an alienability is to me such a good word for what we're talking about, even though it's not like a common word that people use to describe essentially what we're talking about markets, right? It's like the fact yeah. that you can trade something back and forth and right, there is this discourse about empowerment that if you, to own something means you should have the full bundle of rights to it. So there's something disempowering about not having that full bundle, which I could see a libertarian not liking. Yeah. I really like the idea of alienability because there's this discourse and maybe I'm channeling like a Wikipedia article I read about Marx at mm -hmm. this point, but this, this, this idea of being alienated from yourself and from your livelihood, right? There's really important work that's talked about the effects that alienability can have. This is more or less, you know, building on what you were saying, right? For example, um, 
farmers in the Southwest, some of which I've worked with are really struggling with water markets and the fact that they can sell those water rights out of those traditional communities. And some of the communities I used to work with now have bylaws that say that if you're going to want to sell your water rights and alienate them from our community and the land, because the land's you know not worth the same thing there without the water rights, you need to actually get approval from the community. So that's shifting more from like a private property regime to a common property regime. Um, there's, you know, one of the main kind of institutional panaceas that I've been looking at recently are individual transferable quotas and fisheries. Mm. And they're complicated. And, you know, the idea of quotas, I think, is, is fine to good. The idea that they necessarily need to be transferable is, as you're saying, at, at, in the best case, complicated. There's this kind of naive narrative to me that alienability translates automatically to stewardship, which I just, right. I think, needs to be resisted by, based on the implication that, like, pre-commodified cultures can't steward. Like, I, that seems to be something that's not true. But there is, like, right. baked into this, this idea that the allocative efficiency, which you supposedly get from markets, which sometimes I feel like to me means, well, that means that's a fancy word for wealthier people get to buy stuff that they want, which is not, you know, it's complicated. I, I don't want to say that we shouldn't have markets. They're miraculous and get, you know, our lives would be so wholly different without markets. So this, it can't like boil down to like a pro anti-market debate because that's like no one's fully anti-market. Right, right. But you have seen these effects of like local. Um, I have colleagues who have worked on like indigenous um, fishery management in Alaska, and they talk about how the folks they've worked with have been alienated from their historical fishing grounds because of this alienability. And that's just something that's like hard to get past. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And I feel like that's part of the discourse that people don't focus on very much. Um, and I don't know if it's partly because it feels like so complicated to even just get people's rights protected in some form at the outset that throwing in all of these nuances feels complicated, or mm -hmm. if it's more a matter of like lowest common denominator and you bring in these different people who have an interest in having rights protected and seeing rights protected. And we disagree maybe on some of the kind of parameters of how that's done. So kind of everyone, their energy to just focusing on the rights protection at the outset um, without fully grappling with all of the nuances and specific challenges that come out of, you know, of decision-making on those smaller but really important points like full alienability or not. Yeah. I mean, there is something counterintuitive, I think, this idea that by offering further protections and empowerment, you actually can be introducing a vulnerability. Right. And I think part of it is that, you know, the folks who are being granted these rights have busy lives and they're not necessarily keeping up on all of the new bureaucratic implications of a new program. Right. Because, of course, they're not because no one does that. Like no one's like up to date on all the legalese that affects their lives. Right. Right. No, no one is. Um, not even the lawyers. Um I mean, there's also this element of like, you don't want to be patronizing. And so, mm -hmm. you know, me sitting here in Chicago or New York saying, I'm worried that you're not going to make the right choice about your resources doesn't seem right either. So I think lots of times it's right. easier to shy away from that because it doesn't 
it doesn't feel good and it might not be true. You don't know, like everything's so context specific, right? So, right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that you remind me of the um, like 10, I guess it's, uh, it's the nudge book by Richard Thaler and Case Sunstein about, you know, how do you change people's behavior? And I teach that in my class and there's always like a bunch of my students that feel a little uncomfortable with the idea that we're like deciding what's best for other people and trying to just nudge them into these like better decisions. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I get that perspective. Um, but I feel like all of our systems shape how we can, all of our systems shape the choices we make. Right. So somebody either our decisions are being influenced by, kind of like haphazard factors that nobody was like thinking about, or um, in a lot of cases, there might be a little some, something a little bit more nefarious and our choices are being shaped by corporate influence over how our systems are designed. Right. Um, so yeah, it doesn't, it does feel a little bit odd to think about kind of people sitting in positions where they can kind of nudge others into behaving a certain way. But um, at the same time, I'm totally fine with it because I, I feel like it's, we're, we're already being influenced a thousand ways each day and we just, we just don't know it. Right. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's um, gets to this point of uh, what, what is the counterfactual, which is this kind right. of annoyingly jargony sounding term for just like, what's the alternative? Right. And so the yeah, alternative yeah. here isn't like there were just like a bunch of billiard balls floating around free to do whatever we want. Like we're already not in that space. People are actively manipulating what we do all the time. Do we want to do we want them to be doing it for like some kind of profit or for some version of the public good that maybe you agree with? Maybe we don't. But it's not just to like make more money. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I very much agree with that. Although I, I do sometimes wonder kind of who, who defines the public good and, like, oh dear. and the public yeah. interest <laughs> not to go down <laughs> that rabbit hole. Right. But like, I have a very strong sense of like what would be in the public interest on a whole range of issues, but I know that not everybody would share those perspectives. Right. Um, so then that adds another qualifying factor. Yeah. I suppose a part of my brain was hoping to just gloss over that entire like sticky <laughs> issue. It's like, Oh, of course we all agree on like what well, we, we don't have do to go them. there. Yeah. <laughs> well, so to clarify, the, um, these different um, discourses about rights, Caitlin, one, one way I'm making a sense of it right now is that one way we view about rights, and this is the dominant way they're viewed in my field, is as a tool. Right. As a tool to, um, with the instrumental purpose of incentivizing certain behaviors over others. Mm-hmm. And that's really a lot of what we talk about. And so if you have certain bundles of rights, you're, you're, you're apt to act a certain way. It's kind of institutions plus incentives recipe leads to behavior. So it's very much couched in like those terms. Yeah. And it seems like this alternative framing, framing was the word I wanted, framing for rights is more as a moral claim and a claim towards prioritizing some outcomes over others. Yeah, I think I would mostly agree with that. Um, but I think I tend to think of international of of human rights as creating these um, as creating legal legal accountability. 
Um, so legal obligations that theoretically bring some accountability with them. You know, one of the challenges of international rights law is that the accountability piece is hard because you know, we don't have the same type of governance that you have within individual nation states where, you know, we have our um, law enforcement and, and everything else that can kind of follow along with the, account the accountability piece. Um, and you don't have that in the international space. Um, but, but, you know, theoretically human rights that are recognized um, are more than just like an moral um, um, value that exists, but, but they are saying that governments have this legal obligation and they need to take specific steps to ensure that the rights that are recognized in treaties are actually realized in practice. Um, there's a, it's definitely not a perfect system um, at all, but, but that kind of at the core is what human, international human rights are about. Okay. You're reminding me actually of um, another distinction that I'd like to get your perspective on, Caitlin, which is the difference between formal rules and informal norms and values. Mm -hmm. And this is something else that we think a lot about. And it comes up a lot in the context of enforcement, right? Because one of the main reasons why, so right, so formal rules is the stuff that I think lawyers think a lot about mm -hmm. as a non-lawyer. <laughs> and informal rules are the, are the things that like stereotypically like anthropologists and other folks, other social scientists that are like trying to like study behavior on the ground, right? So it's what happens based on, again, social norms that dictate actually the lion's share of human behavior. Like we're all very normy all the time. Yeah. So, and it comes up, that distinction comes up in the context of enforcement because, right, a big reason why informal rules don't track formal rules a lot of time is because formal rules are hard to enforce. Yeah. Right. Like I remember being, forget what country this was, but I remember someone telling me like, oh, we have these beautiful environmental laws if only they were enforced. And in my mind, I was like, well, yeah, because that's the hard part, because you can't like enforce laws from, uh, you know, a nice conference room in the Hilton where you can right. write where you can write laws from there. But you can't, you know, it's much less prestigious to enforce laws and it's harder to get folks to do it uh, accountably. So I'm just curious. Again, <laughs> I'm trying to resist also just like treating you as like the lawyer on the podcast, <laughs> but I'm just curious, like how much you've, you think about this distinction between formal and informal, or do you, do you use different terminology? Yeah. It sounds like you do think about that space some. Yes. Um, so in the international legal space, um, we talk about kind of the binding legal obligations that come from um, treaties that governments have signed and ratified, and those mm -hmm. create binding obligations on governments. Um, but then we also have this term called soft law, which are things that we say like rights that exist, um, but not because they were ratified in treaties, um, but they come out um, in other ways. So those might be like one, I, I think the term I often use in writing was like, quasi-legal rules, are, okay. um, which are like um, like the voluntary guidelines on the good governance of tenure or responsible governance of tenure, the VGGT, um, we would refer to as soft law because 
lots of governments back them up. Um, so it is kind of this agreement of what cultural norms exists or sh what, what the stance of governments should be around governance of tenure, um, but they didn't ratify them. So they're not like this formal set of legal obligations like a treaty would have okay. or, or like a treaty would create. Um, so that's one way that those come up in international law. Um, but they're written but, down, like there, there's a document. So yes, so uh, yeah, usually, but then we also have customary law, customary international law, which is just like the force of what is customary over a long period of time. And if something is like customary over a long enough period of time, you can make this argument that those equate to, you know, they, those have the force like, of, yeah. Yeah, um, but okay. that is, it's a, it's, a slip, it's a more slippery slope. It's like a harder argument to make, but, but there is that term as well. And then at the like national level, which is where, you know, most laws are set by national governments. Um, uh, it, in my last job, we thought a lot about that, about kind of how you can have this like perfect law on paper and it's never enforced. And how do you move from like the, beautiful legal rules that the national government have cre has created to um, kind of enforcing it in some way or vice versa. Well, I don't know if it's vice versa, but, or, you know, the converse, I guess, is like you have good practices on the ground, but how do you get those codified into national law mm. um, to help strengthen them as well? Um, and my, my starting point was always, like, you know, it is useful to have good laws and regulations, but that is not enough. Um, but if you don't have those, it's harder to get, you know, it's, it, it feels like a good first step, a good starting point. Um, but one thing that we did sometimes wonder about um, with some of my coworkers was, um, you know, we were mostly lawyers working on land rights and land governance and other things. And we did sometimes wonder how much are we trying to use the law as this tool that we're like hammering on, like in every context where it doesn't really make sense. Like we think of the law as a really important tool, but in certain situations and certain contexts, what is in a formal contract doesn't actually make that much of a difference. So our question was like, do you work with, um, do you work with community groups to understand like kind of what contracts mean to try to make sure that they can get the best, if they are going to sign a contract, get the best contract for them? Or does that not make sense because contracts, using contracts is not at all how they govern their own kind of relations around resource rights or anything else. Um, but I think the reason why we often did still focus on kind of improving legal tools like contracts or laws was because in a lot of the situations we saw, there was a very lopsided kind of understanding of the law and legal tools between the parties. So you would have a company come in and try to sign a contract with the community and the contract doesn't mean that much to the community because that's how they're not used to, um, that's not a tool that they usually use. But the company is used to using tools like that. And so if, if it is going to be used to govern the relationship between a community and a company, it felt important to help 
kind of support communities and understanding what does this mean. Um, but you know, even then you have just like you have beautiful laws that are never enforced, you also have beautiful contracts or terrible contracts that are, you know, only partly enforced or never enforced as well. So right. I guess that's a very long convoluted answer to basically say, I think from where I was sitting, and I am not a traditional lawyer at all, but um, I see kind of all of these legal tools as important tools, but only one part of any story or any solution. Right. Uh, that seems quite healthy to not assume <laughs> that like the hammer you've been given is, is going to find all the nails in the world. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably the right way to go. So, so Caitlin, um, I do want to transition to make sure we cover a couple of topics. I mean, so the work that you're describing Am I right to have the impression that a lot of it was done at the Columbia Center for Sustainable Development where you spent some time? The Columbia Center on Sustainable Investment. Uh, oh, investment. CCSI. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've always been um, writing down development. Is there, are there two centers or am I just making the second one there up? There was a center that also had development in their name as well. Okay. Um, but okay. yeah, yeah. But a lot of people, I mean, we worked on sustainable development. So a lot of people put in development instead of investment. Okay. In it's just, just what, this is what I wrote in my notes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so a lot of that okay. was work that I did at the center. Um, I was there for eight years. I was there until the middle of last year. Um, so that's, that's where I spent a lot of time focusing on land rights and land acquisitions and, and land grabs and other things like coffee value chains as well. Okay. Could you tell me just a little bit about the center and yeah. what it focuses on? Is it, you mentioned that you were working with other lawyers. Is it primarily like a legal operation or how does it work? Yeah, the center is a joint center of Columbia Law School and the Earth Institute. The Earth Institute's this umbrella network at Columbia University that brings together earth scientists and others working on kind of um, earth science related issues. Um, and so we were mostly lawyers. There were, there were also some economists at the center, um, but it was, you know, pretty lawyer heavy. And the team that I supervised was all lawyers. Um, so we were <laughs> very, um, law centric in, in a lot of the work that we were doing. The center works on sustainable development and how international investment can support and not undermine sustainable development and human rights. Um, and looking at it um, kind of at all levels at the international legal systems level. Um, so making sure that the treaties are supportive of sustainable development outcomes, um, but also at the national level and all the way through down to like the contract level or like specific contexts um, and, and, and kind of how investment can support sustainable development in specific contexts as well. Okay. And I think I'm projecting here, but would you call what you did there like research in terms of having a question and then collecting data to answer that question about how certain investments are going? Are you like doing interviews with like implementing partners? So we did a lot of research. Uh, you're not projecting at all. It was okay. uh, a pretty research kind of, I, I honestly can't remember the term we were using, but kind of you know, action oriented research um, or kind of research that aimed to be really um practical. And, and so, you know, it wasn't like lots of academic research for the purpose of publishing papers, um, but really trying to tackle some of the like big 
questions and issues that existed in the specific spaces where we were working. Um, I was focused on in investments in land and agriculture and food systems, but we also had a team focused on investments in um, extractive, so mining and, and oil and gas and also the energy transition. Um, and, and so research is, is one way in which the center operates, um, conducting research, but also developing tools um, and other resources. Um, and that could be like, um, we, we created these handbooks for community members who are interacting with investors um, so that they can understand what is the investor asking, if we are thinking about signing a contract with the investor, what types of questions should we be asking and thinking about first um, tools like that. Um, the center also does training. So we train government officials, civil society representatives, um, sometimes investors or others from the private sector. Um, so yeah, there was, we, we were particularly in the last couple of years also trying to figure out how can we be how can we be involved in more kind of um, global South-led research um, or mm. kind of working more in partnership with organizations in the context where we were trying to do our research or trying to do our work? Okay. Um, what did you like? And now that you're not there, I can ask you this question. What did you dislike about that work? <laughs> that may be the part that you have to delete. Um, no, I, um, yeah, I mean, I loved so much of the work at the center. Um, I, I mean, I had great colleagues. I think the topics are really interesting. Um, I, I liked that I could dig into the nuances of the issues um, in a way that I couldn't always I don't think I would have been able to do if I was just approaching something from kind of an activist perspective, because um, there are a lot of gray areas and nuances and my mind tends to find those. And so um, it gave me, you know, some space to kind of try to grapple with some of those, but also to think really creatively as well. There was a lot of flexibility um, at that job to, to think creatively. And I really appreciated um, and really enjoyed that. Um, one thing that I was thinking about when you were asking me earlier about kind of what is, I don't remember exactly how you phrased it, but my origin story or like, how did I mm -hmm. end up with this career, um, or on this path? Um, I do feel like after, like while I was in law school and after law school for a couple of years, I, I worked with a number of different organizations and I was always trying to figure out like, what is the right spot for me where I can bring like my skill set and privileges and like the fact that I'm this kind of lawyer educated at an Ivy League law school coming from like a really particular perspective um, in a way that is useful um, but not not super elitist or problematic it, kind of overbearing yeah, I think the human rights space um, has been at risk for a while of becoming like overly elitist, I think, like overly lawyerly. There's a lot of lawyers in that space. Um, and I think that is, it makes sense because it's predicated on like human rights law. But it's also, I think, problematic because I don't think lawyers are necessarily 
the best equipped to think about rights issues. Um, and they're, you know, not the ones who have to deal with a lot of the rights issues that arise as well. Um, and so I, you know, at, at some point I um, worked with a Global South organization that was doing social justice work. And I like really loved the idea of working with a Global South organization, but I felt like I was not the right person to be at a Global South organization as well. Um, so all of that is a very long way of saying that one of the things that I liked about the center was I felt like I could just kind of bring my authentic self and skill set and not not feel guilty about it, like not feel like mm -hmm. I was in the wrong space, um, but could kind of just use what I had to, to think about issues creatively. Um, and the other thing I really liked was that we, um, we were able to kind of support a lot of social justice work from a different perspective, which I felt um, was useful. So we would, you know, there were lots of issues where advocates were working on it, rights activists were working on the issue and we could kind of bring similar arguments to the same issue, but, you know, we put the Columbia name on it and send it off separately. And it kind of brought a different layer of, of perspective into the discussion in a way that um, I was told was helpful for helping kind of government actors or others kind of take a certain issue um, more seriously or to, to, um, to, to focus on it a bit more. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really powerful statement, Caitlin, if this was, um, so my undergraduate degree was in philosophy. So sometimes I, and, and one of my favorite classes was a class, I think just on the good life, <laughs> which is kind of a stereotypical class you might take at a liberal arts college, like the one I was at. I want to take that class. <laughs> it was good. But I mean, I think one of the lessons you learn is that one, one of the ways to the good life is to find a space where you can express your authentic self in a way that your life can afford. Yeah. There's a, there's a more succinct way that, that you can say that my dad quotes to me, but it's, it's more or less that, right? Like, can you express things that are legitimate for you in a way that doesn't make a mess for everything around you? Right. Um, I like that. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. Can we can we talk to you? Can we talk about your work on coffee yeah. and commodity chains? How did that start? Yeah, um, so I don't remember which year, maybe twenty eighteen or so. Um, I was at the center, and um, coffee prices were just atrociously low at the time. Like they were so low that most coffee farmers could not even you know, recoup the costs that it the expenses that they had in growing and producing the coffee. Um, so it was pretty dire for a lot of, of coffee farmers and uh, a group of coffee um, producer representatives uh, approached Jeff Sachs, who was the, the development economist who um, among many, many other roles that he has uh, chairs the advisory board for the center um, and asked him to do some research looking at um, global coffee prices and how producers can be economically viable um, in coffee production. And they partly asked him and the center to do, to do this because the coffee space was feeling a little bit polarized to them. Like there was kind of a lot of blaming between kind of the coffee producers and the brands and the companies and others about like who was responsible for the fact that coffee farmers 
were not able to, to, to cover their expenses. Um, so we did a, a very long piece of research looking at the economic viability of coffee production from the perspective of producers looking both at coffee prices and historically um, how coffee farms have fared, but then also at climate change um, and kind of what climate change means for coffee producers moving forward and coffee production generally. Um, and, and I think in 2019 published like a 140 page paper on this. Um, it was a really interesting exercise in a lot of ways. We brought in um, one of my coworkers who's an economist because there were a lot of economic questions that I was not equipped to, to think about or work on. Um, and we were really trying to figure out like creatively what would be the best approach for ensuring that coffee farmers can be economically viable. Um, and it was really challenging because, you know, coffee is produced in like lots of countries um, and there is a lot of coffee production as well. So, you know, people say the low prices were partly because productivity increased so much in Brazil and Vietnam, and there's just kind of a glut of coffee. So then what do you do about that if you're trying to ensure that coffee farmers in Colombia and all of these other countries are also able to, to earn a living income? Um, and uh, we, we thought about a lot of different approaches you could take, like a coffee cartel, like OPEC style, um, mm -hmm. through to um, kind of getting the companies on the hook for paying a dignity price um, for their coffee that could then somehow get tracked down to the farmer. And then after lots of research and a lot of internal debate, um, we finally settled on suggesting the creation of a global coffee fund, um, whereby companies, um, people like on the downstream could pay into a fund that could then be distributed to coffee farmers in various producing regions to support you know, um, their own livelihoods and kind of sustainable development and coffee producing um, regions. So that was the first project. Um, and it was interesting and exhausting. And I wasn't sure if I was going to work on coffee again after that. But then a, a year or so later, um, uh, we were approached by an investor who was trying to understand kind of sustainability and coffee supply chains and how much of what he was seeing and being told by brands was greenwashing versus how much was like actually accurate in terms of their sustainability. So we ended up doing another um, report looking at kind of living income issues for producers, but also looking at the specific practices of 10 of the largest coffee roasters and brands uh, to try to understand kind of how, how likely was it that their practices would support producers in, in being able to achieve at least the living income. Okay. Um, yeah, I remember when I was reading one of the reports you sent me, Caitlin, actually, I was, I was very surprised. I had no idea that Vietnam made so much coffee. Yeah. I and was it's, like, it, yeah. yeah, pretty new. I think like, well, I guess not so new now, but like in like early two thousands is when their production really, really ramped up. Off. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it seems like there's two stories I think about in this space. One is the whole 
kind of international economic story that I was taught at some point about comparative advantage so that each country, right, should specialize in doing one thing, even if it only has a relative and not absolute advantage in doing this. Yeah. Um, and of course, that it's a whole optimized for one thing at the expense of being vulnerable to lots of other things, which seems to be more and more we're, we're taking the optimum and, and vulnerable approach. Right. And so what we're seeing is that because this is, you know, the main thing that's produced in a lot of these countries, they're vulnerable to like price shocks. They don't have other things to fall back on. Right. And the other piece of the other story that I think about is partly based on my own work with farmers in a couple of different countries, but I'd suppose mostly in the Dominican Republic. It just seems to be that farmers in lots of places, some of them can look actually fairly empowered. I work with fairly industrialized farmers and also in the US, right? There's farmers that in the US that use lots of really expensive machinery. It's, but the margins can be low. There's fierce competition. And ultimately the, the picture you get of a lot of these farmers is, is kind of not very empowered cogs in these very big machines. Yeah. And here's the part where I'm, I'm not sure it's fair to apply my experience to your context, but I've, I've been very worried about the systems where I work in, in kind of predatory intermediaries, where mm -hmm. you can use the gender term middlemen as, as folks that have a lot of power. And so again, in the Dominican Republic, there's these agrochemical companies that they just have a lot of power in the system. They're selling the inputs to the farmers, they're charging them high interest rates, um, for oh, they're giving them loans and then charge them high interest rates on the loans, requiring that they then spend the money on the chemicals that they're selling. So, how I guess the question that results from those observations slash assumptions is, in order to make change in this space, you know, there are like powerful actors. How much do we need to deal with the, the idea of power and the fact that some people have power and other people don't? Yeah, absolutely. I think power is like the biggest issue. Um, I never studied political economy, but at some point a couple of years ago, found myself in my job really wishing I had a PhD in political economy because I think I think a lot of, regardless of whether it's land grabs or kind of coffee supply chains, so much of it comes down to power dynamics and who holds power and who doesn't. And then how do you how do you use tools or can you even use tools to kind of rein in some of the power and make things at least, if not equitable, like to create systems where, you know, people aren't completely dominated by the more powerful actors and they do have some autonomy and, and can make decisions um, that support good dignified livelihoods. Um, in the coffee space, you know, some people who had been working in coffee for a long time described the coffee world as kind of moving more and more towards power being concentrated in the hands of kind of a smaller number of roaster and retailers. Um, and that in their telling of the story was different from um how it had been even maybe a decade or so ago when the um, 
when the traders had more power and, you know, the traders were like some of the middlemen who are um, you know, getting the, getting the coffee either directly or kind of through a few different steps of um, intermediaries and then selling it on to the roasters and retailers, but that the, the overall concentration of power was like moving more and more to the um, roaster and retailers so that the farmers have ended up with like almost no power and the traders are basically doing whatever the roasters and retailers will pay them to do, but are losing their own power as well. And, and then the roasters and the retailers have, um, you know, a lot of power. They, I think would say the roasters and retailers and others like in that downstream space say they're creating value. And I think that's like an interesting question too, of like, what is actual value creation and value extraction versus just the people with the most power being able to capture the most amount of, of money. Cause I would, I would look at coffee and I think the biggest value in this cup of coffee I'm drinking is the beans that like create the caffeine right. and the, and the taste that I'm drinking. It's not the marketing. It's not like all of these other things that are added. Um, but that, you know, but there are some, I think, questions there about um, um, how do you how do you create supply chains that kind of put the monetary value that basically reward value added. Yeah, but like right. So, but right now they're saying that the value add is like all of the steps after the coffee right. is That's grown and harvested. Yes, right. Right. Yep. Um, but if like, how do you create a situation where people recognize that like the biggest value in a cup of coffee is the coffee beans themselves? Um, and how do you then kind of make sure that like the money flows to that value creation? Um, and then there are questions of, I mean, your point about comparative advantage and kind of optimizing or not is an important one as well, because when we were doing that first coffee report and we're looking at, you know, all of the countries that, that grow coffee, um, one argument you can make to the roasters and retailers is that they want to ensure that coffee production remains economically viable enough that a number of these countries continue to grow it because that creates some resilience in the system and they, the roasters and retailers then are not um, set up for huge shocks if there's like a, a big frost in Brazil or something. Um, so at least at the at their level, you're resilient because you have multiple sources, even right. if the producers themselves aren't being made more resilient by that. Right. And but then the question becomes, if by making that argument, are you actually kind of arguing that producers in a number of countries, even if they don't have a comparative advantage right now, should stay in coffee um, to create more resilience in a system that's not serving them, um, right. which doesn't feel like a good argument to make. Um, but if you ask a, you know, coffee producers in a number of countries that maybe don't have the biggest comparative advantage right now in coffee, their families have farmed coffee for generations. They want to stay in it. Not all of them, but, but a lot of them want to stay in it and they want to be able to grow coffee like they always have, but they just want to be paid fairly for it, mm -hmm. which I don't think is, I, I, you know, I'm very sympathetic to that ask, but then, but then 
what do you do with that? So for example, when we were trying to think about what are the what are the tools we could use to ensure that farmers can be economically viable? You know, I was really pushing for a dignity price that roasters or retailers could pay um, that would cover, that would maybe equate to a living income for, for a farmer. But then you look at the comparative advantage of all these different countries and like what it costs to grow coffee in different countries, you would need a different dignity price in each country. And if you then kind of put that down and say, if you're going to buy coffee from Colombia, you have to pay this price. If you're going to buy it from you know, another country, you pay this price. That already happens a little bit because of quality differentials between the countries. But I think that eventually it would kind of just take you down the road of really giving advantages to like the cheapest producers um, and kind of undermining eventually the, the growers and countries where it's more expensive to grow coffee, unless they can really make an argument that you know, the quality that they're, the quality of their coffee is high enough to keep paying that quality differential. Hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, it reminds me of the, I guess, a similar issue with living wages that what a living wage is different depending on where you're living. Yeah. Yeah. The, the power inequality issue, I'm almost, I mean, I'm kind of embarrassed to say that earlier in my career, I didn't honestly think about it all that much until I was just kind of, and that's been a critique of, of, well, a fair amount of social science um, is that it doesn't think a lot. Of, we all kind of know power is there. It's hard to measure a lot of the time, soft power, et cetera. I've just, I've, I've come to really feel like a lot of what happens in policy and behavioral change is this kind of patina that you sprinkle over existing inequalities. And a lot of what's going to happen is the people with the power are going to be better equipped to take advantage of whatever new policy rule comes down more than other folks. Yeah. And it's often most, it's hardest to help the people that need help the most. And we've seen this, you know, in the pandemic, right, with like the monies that were given out, it, it's often hard to help the people that are already the who are the most disempowered and therefore need the help the most who have, who don't have a car to drive to a place where they can get access to resources that are being given out, et cetera. There's lots of different versions of the story you could tell. And so I've just started to feel like, you know, in the language of kind of underlying drivers versus proximate symptoms, a lot of the underlying drivers of negative outcomes that we're trying to address, but also negative outcomes from policies that we implement come from distributions of power. And I, I, yeah. I don't know where to go from there other than to sit with that for a second. But like, that's been a ch like something I've been increasingly taking on board is like a challenge um, in the last couple of years. Yeah, I think it's really important. And I totally agree with your analysis. Um, I think, you know, sometimes I think about like all of the requests that people make. I've been focusing, I've been kind of obsessed with climate change recently, but you know, I've been thinking about all of the asks that we've been making even in the US around like policy change um, to address the climate crisis. And I sometimes wonder whether it seems like, and, and I'm sure it's not as stark as how it feels in my mind right now, but it feels like either those in power will recognize that they need to do enough tweaking of policies to like pretend like they're addressing it enough to satisfy the masses or at some point there will be this revolution feels kind of inevitable if if the those in power do not kind of find some 
way of, of creating enough change that people um, are satisfied with. So it feels like it, it feels like those in power, wherever you are around the world, um, but you know, I think the US is a good example of this, are only willing to make enough changes to like satisfy the, the demands that people have um, without harming their own powerful positions or those of their cronies enough, right? So it's like the bare minimum and like they're always looking for what's the, the bare minimum of, of what they can do. But um, one thing I was thinking of when you're talking about um, the underlying drivers and kind of how people are well-placed to take advantage of, of things is this book I read years ago. Um, it's a Michael Lewis book called Flash Boys, I think, about high frequency trading. But there's this very small part in the book where he very briefly goes through a history of Wall Street and all of the regulations that were created to try to rein in whatever challenge was being seen with Wall Street right then and showing how each regulation or effort to address something just created a new loophole that was then exploited by some other Wall Street actor or the same Wall Street actor and how eventually he argues mm. that this is what led us to high frequency trading and because of like all of these efforts to regulate creating loopholes that were then exploited um and i feel like that really stuck with me for a couple of reasons but one of them was um i tried to then bring into my own work always thinking like three steps down the line like if if this happens and it seems like a good thing what are the next couple of things what are the new lo loopholes that will be exploited and what are the next things that will happen and can you try to address some of them. Um, but it was also kind of a reminder that it's really hard to like fully regulate people with a lot of power and people with a lot of drive to make money. Um, because it is very hard to design a system without these loopholes, particularly, you know, when you're in a country like ours that loves to create loopholes for, <laughs> for all of our rules. Right. I mean, one thing I'm just reminded of is how difficult it's, it's, it's always also easier, you know, for me, who's never, well, within my own institution, I've been involved in like developing, creating rules. So that's actually been very interesting, but apart from that, right. It's, you're kind of sitting at the outside critiquing how other people are doing things. And of course it is hard to make rules. People will strategically adapt. I mean, it's kind of like when you hear about what makes someone good at chess, I feel like one of the, it's pattern recognition, that enables you to kind of predict like, okay, three moves down, like, how is this going to play out? Okay. How is this going to play yeah. out? How is this going to play out? You're just like all these different scenarios based on the strategic responses. Um, that sounds like an interesting book. I've been totally randomly w watching the big short movie oh, in like yeah. the last couple of days. So um, I'm also reminded of a book I read by this fellow, Anand Garitaratis. I think that's his last name. Yes. Winners take all. Yes, that's um, that's been on my reading list for a long time. I haven't yet read it. Okay, it I'll just say that good. it's feisty. Yeah, <laughs> it's like I could, I could see that. <laughs> yeah, he's 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 um he has some emotions and and quite a bit of intellect behind to support them. It's yeah, um, but this idea that like it's it reminds me of what you're saying, and he critiques everything from like the Clinton Global Initiative to lots of other things about put people in power who don't want to kind of upset that power, but want to also tell themselves that they're doing good. And oh, basically yeah. just how problematic that space can be when you're, you're 
kind of a glamorous enabler at first. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So, well, so um, I don't want to take up too much of your time, Caitlin. I mean, we ended up talking about rights for a while and you mentioned, you know, so we've talked about the coffee space for a bit. You mentioned this idea of greenwashing, which is also relevant to kind of what we're talking about now, right? This concern that we're not kind of addressing underlying drivers. So I guess I'll put it to you. Would you like to talk more about the coffee work, maybe this greenwashing angle? Because I also want to make sure that we save some time for this current project that you've developed since leaving the center at Columbia, the 31 days of climate action. So I'll ask you, where would you like to go? Yeah, um, happy to, I, I can say like a couple more words about coffee and then move on to climate if you, if that, that sounds works. great. Yep. Um, for coffee, I think you had asked me um, before we were talking today about voluntary standards. Is that something that you're still interested in? It is, yeah, just because it, it feels, again, like in certification space, you're always worried about the fox guarding the hen house. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I feel so torn, honestly, like so torn about <laughs> certifications and sustainability initiatives, um, standards. I feel like half the days, if you asked me, I would say they should all be burned to the ground. And the other half of the days, I would say they are absolutely important and everyone needs to be using them. Um, and I think it's, but I think, you know, ultimately kind of my stance, like a lot of the other things we've talked about today are that they can be a useful tool, but they can't be the only tool that is used. Um, and I think it also depends on which certification you're talking about. I think some of them are much more akin to greenwashing um, than, than not. Um, but you know, I think some of them bring can serve as a useful tool that supplements and complements a lot of other other efforts. Um, but I, I hate when there is kind of you know total reliance by a company or brand just on a certification scheme because I don't think that when it comes to producer well-being or livelihoods that any of the the certifications are enough. Um, having said that, for the last coffee report that I worked on, we did take a look at um, some of the most commonly used uh, certification schemes, and kind of our conclusion was none of them are enough to guarantee a living income for farmers. And I should say, we focused a lot on living income um, for producers because it seemed like a good... It, there are reasons why it's, you know, there's some definition around it. It's, you know, it seems like a bare minimum that, that um, should exist. Um, but a lot of the producers don't, a lot of the coffee producers at least don't like the concept of living income because they hmm. don't think it's enough. Like they want, oh. they want something that goes beyond a living income. They don't want to just be scraping by like meeting their basic needs, but they want something that gives them more than what they perceive living income to encompass. Oh, you said producers um, want that. Producers, yeah. Oh, so of course, you, coffee of course growers. Yeah. I thought you were yeah. saying that like the, the larger companies were insisting on more, and that's why I was kind of more surprised. <laughs> no, 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 no. no okay. they uh, larger companies often are saying that living income is kind of out of their control right. uh, for various reasons. Um, but you know, with the certifications, we looked at um, a few different ones, and fair trade is the one where you know people people talk a lot about fair trade. Um, I think that fair trade can be a useful tool in the situation where you have rock bottom 
coffee prices um, because they do guarantee a minimum price for their coffee producers um, for, or for the coffee they purchase. But it's not, it's definitely not a panacea. They, the minimum price in a lot of places would not equate to a price that would allow a living income for growers. Um, and there's also all sorts of reasons why in practice, a coffee grower might not even receive that minimum price, even mm -hmm. though fair trade is paying it, it gets diluted through the co-ops and, and other things. Um, so it's, you know, it's, I think it's better than nothing if coffee, if coffee prices are a dollar and fair, the, the fair trade minimum price is 140, then, you know, it's better than nothing, but it's not, it's not really, it's not a guarantee of living income. Um, but fair trade is trying to um, create a living income reference price um, for a couple of different commodities, including coffee in a few places. And I think that is really interesting. It's still challenging to figure out what is the right reference price. It kind of goes back to my dignity price idea that we were talking about earlier, but it's basically figuring out in each context what is the price that if you were a producer producing an average amount of coffee on an average size plot, um, what's the price that you would need for that coffee to be able to meet your basic needs and achieve a living income? Um, and I think it's really interesting that they're trying to do this. And I, I think the success of whether it will be successful or useful at all will just depend on whether companies are willing to pay that living income reference price for their coffee. And I assume that most of the big ones will not be willing to pay that, but there will be you know, a few of them that um, are willing to give it a go. So that's kind of my stance on Got it. No, that's great. I mean, there's follow-up questions that I would like to ask, but I'll just say that it's, um, I kind of feel like I'm in a, like a policy workshop space for like exploring different ideas. And of course it's like very invigorating one of the things I've, I mean, so I, I work at a liberal arts institution and, and sometimes it, I miss some of the more like applied angles because there's a lot yeah. more like basic work being done. And there's even, you know, disagreements about applied versus basic and how, how that should engage in the curriculum. But I, I do miss um, at my own institution sometimes thinking and talking about like, okay, what about this? What about that? What would happen if you did this? Like, I very much like that type of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's where my mind goes, even though sometimes I just wish there was like a simple black and white answer, like, yes, good, no, bad. Yes. <laughs> like, and then we can move on. <laughs> yeah. But I yeah. guess that's not how the world works. Or at least for me, like a on off switch where it's like today, I'm just going to think real simple. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So let's talk about this new project that you're leading 31 days of climate action. Yeah. So you started that since you left the center at Columbia is my understanding. Yes. Can you talk to me about what motivated this project and what it's about? Yeah. Um, so I, I left the center last year and I, I loved my job. I loved my coworkers. I just, I, for various, mostly personal reasons needed a break and I was planning on decompressing a bit. Um, it had been a couple of like very intense years. Um, and then I somehow ended up in this like deep climate spiral where I was spending all of my time just reading about climate change, um, read lots of books from the library on climate change from different climate scientists, um, was reading lots of articles and other things. 
and it wasn't a new topic for me. I've been working on climate change on and off as part of my job at CCSI for, for years. Um, but there was just something about kind of having the time to read as much as I could take. And also the IPCC report coming out over the summer and you know the UN Secretary General saying this is code red for humanity and realizing that you know in the past few years when I've been paying the most attention to climate change and had been like the most concerned about it, um, there was so much talk and our emissions kept going up every year anyway, right? Like it seemed like there was just a, a bigger and bigger disconnect between what the world was doing and how we were responding and what the science was saying and the scientists saying like, it is, you know, it's an emergency. We need to do as much as we can. Um, and, and, you know, from where I was sitting in Chicago, it felt like business as usual. No one, no one was really kind of trying to, to deal with it at the level of response that it really requires right now. So I was kind of in this deep climate spiral, feeling lots of climate feelings and climate grief and anxiety. Um, and then at some point, oh, in November, I suddenly had this idea to put together 31 days of climate action, um, partly based on kind of the fact that, you know, I had been having a lot of conversations with friends about the things that I was doing around climate change, just in my personal life, um, and um, the need to like do more on climate change. And I was finding it a little bit hard to kind of think about how can I coherently pull together all of these different thoughts and actions that I've been trying to take, and that I would love to see other people take, and present them to people that's not in a way that's totally overwhelming. Um, and so I decided to do this as kind of a way a way to kind of introduce more people, particularly people who know that climate change is happening, but just don't know what to do about it. Um, kind of as like one person, it feels like an overwhelming crisis and challenge. And there, it's, it's, it's easy to feel hopeless or helpless um, or both. Um, and it's hard to figure out kind of what are the kind of most high impact things I could be doing in the limited amount of time that I might have. Um, on climate change. And I should say, I guess one other thing that kind of pushed me to do this was I felt like I'd been in a space for a long time where a lot of the people I talked to about climate change who were focusing on climate change more as part of their career, the work that they were doing, were focusing only on the need for systemic change, or at least that's what it felt like. There was like a big there's a lot of discussion about how it's the system that needs to change, it's the corporations that need to do more, it's the government that needs to do more, and we shouldn't be putting climate action on individuals. Um, and I fully, I very much agree that we need systemic change um, and that the corporations and our governments need to step up a lot more, but it's like, I feel like we're in this vicious cycle where everybody's just punting the responsibility to someone else. And it feels very hard to um, get anything to change because we're always pointing, everyone, every entity is pointing fingers at someone else that should be moving first. Um, and I was reading this um, great book by Kimberly Nichols, Nicholas, um, Under the Sky We Make. And um, she's a climate scientist. and she, her book, I thought did a great job of kind of tackling this question head on and, you know, talking about, I think there's a stat like 
like 70 or 80% of all carbon pollution can be attributed to like 100 oil and gas companies, basically. Um, so a lot of people point the fingers at them. But 70% of carbon pollution can also be attributed to households. Um, so there is some reason to think it's not an either or, it's a both and. Like we need everything to change and we're in this emergency and we need you know as many people doing as much as we can on as many fronts as possible um, to address the climate crisis. Um, and so that book I felt like helped kind of clarify some of my own thinking about how to think about kind of the role of individual action versus community action and collective action and then systems change. Um, and so I put together 31 days of climate action to kind of help people think about how they could kind of act more on climate and all of the roles that we have, like our roles as individuals and households and consumers, but also as citizens and community members and um, however else we, like what other, whatever other identities we, we give ourselves. Um, and so we, I, I roped in a former colleague from CCSI who had also um, left the center and had a bit of time and we put together a website. We, send out, we sent out daily uh, action emails every day in January um, to people around the country and also around the world. It, it was meant to be kind of American centric um, because I think Americans have a lot more that we could be doing around climate change. Um, but we had some great participation from, from other countries as well, which was, which was fun to see how people were adapting it to their own country context. Um, and I had conceived of it as being just this standalone project where you know, we do it in January and then it'd be done. Um, but we did decide to just um, uh, adjust a few things so that it's, um, something that people can continue to sign up for and do at any point. Um, so we've had already in February, people sign up to get the daily emails for 31 days. And it's a website that now exists with all of this information on it. And um, I'm kind of exploring whether we might build more off of it. I had some requests to do like a kid-centric version of the the project hmm. which I'm not not sure if I'll do because honestly I'm a little tired right now and want a bit of a break but um, that sounds like a lot of work it it was a lot of work but it was helpful in kind of channeling some of my climate anxiety and grief into something that felt productive and, totally. and useful well I meant that so. like doing a whole kids version would be like a lot more work too <laughs> oh yeah yeah I, I mean and also what kid wants to do 31 days of anything <laughs> so I right, don't think exactly. we'll do that but um but you know, maybe I have some ideas for kind of collecting kid artwork and letters mm. around climate change and putting them together and getting them sent out in different ways. And and the website is 31 Days of Climate Action. I mean, I'm looking at it now, yeah. 31 with the numbers. Um yeah. okay. So, and this is something you're thinking you're you're people can still go on the website, you said, and they, like they'll still get emails from you if they sign up. Yes, um, okay. we would love for anyone to participate who wants to. Um, if you, you know, we're not tech people, so hopefully we set it up correctly for it to, to work now. But um, yeah, you can uh, sign up. We won't share your info or anything, but we will send you one email a day for 31 days with the suggested climate action. Um, all of them are meant to be done in 10 minutes or less. So 
you know, mm. in the time it takes to brew a cup of coffee and drink it, you can get your climate action done at the same time. Um, and there, you know, it's kind of a mix of things like calling your senators and representatives and asking for specific climate policies to um, things that you can do at home, like reducing food waste and composting um, or tweaking your diet to um, things you can do in community as well. Mm. So I think some people, when they hear email, they think newsletter, but that, that, that doesn't sound like that's what this is really. It's like, like a daily call to action. Yes. Daily call to action, 10 minutes or less. One thing you can do on, on climate change. Okay. And it's probably the San Francisco water I've been drinking, but um, have you thought about an app? Um, no, you know, I don't think so. I briefly, when this other person asked me that, um, but there are actually a couple of great apps that already exist that I didn't find until like halfway through putting together my own, um, project, two apps that I would highly recommend. Um, one is called climate action now, um, which makes it super easy to take really quick action on your phone, like things like sending emails to your representatives. And um, I, I, I find it personally a little addictive. I spend like five minutes on it every day. <laughs> it feels fun to like knock out a few actions. And then Earth Hero um, is another app, which is a little bit more focused on kind of providing information around actions you can take to, to kind of reduce your own carbon pollution, um, but then also to kind of work on climate change from a more social action perspective. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it sounds great, Caitlin. I feel like, so I've been reading a bit of literature on kind of basic psychological human needs. And two of the ones that come up pretty consistently are essentially some version of efficacy, self-efficacy mm. or collective efficacy and community or feeling related to people. And it feels yeah. like there's a bit of each of those in this work, um, both for you, as you were kind of saying, and for others, right? I feel like that's been such a struggle. We all know about this. It's been talked about a lot in the pandemic. I mean, I've felt the struggle of, uh, isolation professionally more than I, I was, I've not been used to like feeling unmotivated professionally, but during the pandemic, it's just been like, okay, it's another zoom groundhog day. Yeah. And how do you kind of keep staring at the screen and marshal the feelings that you feel like you should be feeling? Yeah. Um, so I feel like we, we need projects like this, both as producers of them, but also as, uh, I don't want to say consumers, um, as participants, <laughs> Participants is good. I was going yeah. to say users, and then someone users, pointed yeah. out to me the other day that the only two industries that use the term users are like the drug industry and the tech industry. Oh which, dear. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Participants. Okay. Yeah, I think that's right. And you know, we we were putting together our project so quickly that we didn't have time to build a really cohesive community around it. Like we didn't have. Um, like online message boards that people could use or anything like that. But I heard these great stories of people who created their own little mini communities while they were going through it. One of my friends said she had a text chain with 15 of her family members where they would talk about the daily actions and how they were doing it and sharing recipes and all sorts of stuff. Um, so, you know, if anyone's listening to this and they want to find a group of family members or friends to, to do the actions with, I think that would be really cool. Um, 
And then I guess the other thing I would just say is that it's interesting to me that you said that community is so important because that is actually one of the things that popped up a lot for me in my research on climate change when thinking about um, adaptation and like a mm-hmm. lot of what people talk about for climate adaptation, it feels like a lot of it comes down to like strong communities and and kind of because so much of the climate impacts that we'll see will be around kind of like natural disasters that are exacerbated by climate change, et cetera. And like strong communities can help um, can help you recover faster, um, help your community recover faster. Um, but I also see a lot of links to climate change mitigation as well and building stronger community, like not letting your food go to waste, sharing more instead of consuming more, all of these things that like if you have strong physical communities can be really helpful um, in so many ways, as well as you know, from a personal well-being and happiness perspective. Right. Yeah. So both instrumentally and, and just extrinsically and intrinsically, it's important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Caitlin, this has been fantastic. This has been a lot of fun. Speaking of like feeling connected, this is just, this has been one of my favorite parts about this podcast is it's just a nice excuse to like talk to very interesting people. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was great to talk to you and to reconnect with you. Um, I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.